0: Today we've got kind of a potpourri of subjects to talk about, a cornucopia, if you will, a plethora of different things that's going to be talked about in uh, the end of chapter 4 in 1 Timothy and the chapter 5 that we're going to be uh, in today. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bible to those passages, we can start in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4 and verse 12. And the first thing that we're going to deal with here is Uh, what it talks about is it covers the gap that is sometimes existent in our churches between an older generation and a younger generation. And we must realize that every age brings something special to the table. The Bible talks about here in this passage to don't dismiss the younger generation. We must realize uh, that we can't just push them to the side. But at the same time, we can't Turn me down there a little bit, J-Rod, at least in the monitors. Yeah, that's better. Thank you, sir. I'm about to get real loud up in here, so you better just get ready for it. (laughs) We can't dismiss the younger generation, but at the same time, we cannot disrespect the older generation. And when generations come together, it's a beautiful thing that doesn't happen very often uh, out in the secular world. The unbridled energy and passion of the younger generation and the wisdom and experience of an older generation all pulling together in the same direction, both putting their egos and agendas to the side for a bigger goal. That is what the church is supposed to look like, both the older and younger generation reaching toward each other and meeting in the middle. So 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul tells Timothy this, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. See, in the Greek and the Jewish cultures, they placed a great emphasis on age. And since Timothy was in his 30s, which was still young by the culture standards, he would have. Uh, had to be been an example of what a mature Christian would look like as the leader of this uh, large group of house churches in the uh, city of Ephesus. He couldn't use his youth as an excuse for a lack of maturity or a lack of acting out of the love and faith and purity that are found in Christ. See, the prophet Jeremiah once tried to use his youth as an example in Jeremiah 1, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, and it says this, it says, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, and this is an awesome uh, passage. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. God's talking to Jeremiah here. He said, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. But Jen, Je- Jeremiah said, ah, Lord, behold, I do not know how to speak for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only youth for to you, All to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. What are we trying to say here is that our age does not define what we can do for God. Timothy started this radical journey for the gospel at the age of 18 or 19 years ago as just a teenager. How many of you students are ready to just leave home and go out into the uh, mission field and be persecuted in cities and beaten and possibly killed for your faith? You down for that job right now? You ready? I'm loading the van up. Yeah? Becca's ready. But see, someone once said that you can't say that I would go across the world to share the gospel if you won't go across the street. See, I I love students and teenagers. I was a youth pastor for nine years, and there's something beautiful about people that haven't settled into the status quo and they still believe that they can change the world with their lives. That energizes me, that excites me. As a youth pastor, we once did a study on the book Do Hard Things by Alex and Brett Harris. And it speaks directly to teenagers and what they could do if they quit buying into the lie that they have to be obsessed with clothes and sports and the opposite gender. Did you know that the term teenager did not even exist in the vocabulary until the 1900s? Before that, you were either a child or an adult. Let me tell you three quick stories about young people that uh, wouldn't allow their youth to be an excuse. The first was George. George was born in Northern Virginia in 1732 to a middle-class family. When he was 11 years old, he lost his father, and even though his peers never considered him very bright, he applied himself to his studies and mastered geometry, trigonometry, and surveying by the time he was 16. At 17 years old, George had the chance to put his studies to use at his first job, official surveyor of Culpeper County, Virginia. This wasn't a boy's job, and it certainly wasn't office work. For the next three years, George endured the hardships of frontier life as he measured and recorded previously unmapped territories. His measuring tools were heavy logs and chains. George was a man at 17. Next is David. David was born in 1801 near the city of Knoxville, Tennessee, where his father was serving in the state militia. At 10 years old, David began his career at sea, serving as a naval cadet on the warship Essex. At 11, he saw his first battle. At age 12, David was given command of a ship that had been captured in battle and was dispatched with a crew to take the vessel and his men back to the United States. On the journey home, the captured British captain took issue at being ordered around by a 12-year-old and announced that he was going below to get his pistols, which out of respect, David had allowed him to keep. David promptly sent him word that if he set one foot on the deck with his pistols, he'd be shot and thrown overboard, so that the captain decided to stay below instead. That was a good idea, right there, right? Lastly, we have Clara. Clara was born in Oxford, Massachusetts on Christmas Day of 1821. She was the baby of the family with 10 years, separating her and the next youngest. She was a timid child, so terrified by strangers that she was hardly able to speak. Then something happened that would change her life forever. When she was 11 years old, her older brother David fell from the roof of a barn and was seriously injured. Young Clara was frantic and begged to help take care of him. Once in the sick room, Clara surprised everyone by demonstrating all the qualities of an experienced nurse. She learned better than anyone how to make her brother comfortable. Little by little, the doctor allowed her to take over all his care uh, with her brother's uh, recovery lasting two years. A year later, at the age of 14, Clara became the nurse for her father's hired man who had come down with smallpox, and then to more patients as the epidemic spread through Massachusetts Village, where they lived. Still shy and timid, her desire to sure, serve others uh, drove her to overcome her fears, and by the age of 17, she was a successful schoolteacher with over 40 students. Why am I telling you these stories? I'm telling you these things because all of these young people were given huge levels of responsibility at a young age, and it was uh, really not that uncommon in those days. So, So what changed? What's changed is the problem is that we as young people, as well as adults, have set terribly low expectations of what we are capable of. George Washington was that official surveyor of Culpeper County at the age of 17, later becoming the president. David Farragut was the captain of a ship at the age of 12, later serving in the War of 1812 in the Civil War, and he then became the very first admiral in the United States Navy. Clara Barton became a nurse at 14 and later founded the Red Cross. See, our age does not define what we can do for God. Let no one despise your youth. What we could do as a church would be amazing if the younger generation believed that they could change this town for Christ and live life motivated by radical love that we saw in Christ's example. And what if they looked for more mature Christians to mentor them and to invite that into their life and say, hey, I want to learn from you. And what if the older generation stepped up alongside the younger generation and decided again that they believed that their life could make a difference and they believed that they could still change the world like they believed when they were just young? What if they found a young person and poured their life into them? Longtime member, I'm here to tell you that you have not done your part for this church if you pass on one day and you have not replicated yourself. What if we all believe that we could shine a light in this dark world and make a difference? See, we say that we believe in a God that is omniscient, all-powerful, and all-knowing, and he's got everything in his hands. But as a church, we're confident, and we're okay with sitting back and just playing church and just going through the motions and living in a town that is racked by drugs and addiction and lost people, and we're okay with that? Hey, or do we believe that our God in our lifetime, can change this town. And if we came together as a congregation, young and old, instead of fighting our little fights that have nothing to do with the gospel, and instead say everything is off the table except for the mission of reaching this town for Christ. Both generations reaching towards each other hand in hand on a mission, shining a light in this dark world. First Timothy 5.1 goes on and says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Here Paul tells Timothy to be careful when approaching someone about their sin. Yes, we cannot ignore sin because sin hurts people. And sin should break our hearts because sin breaks people. But we must come alongside them and walk with them. And some translations say it this way, don't sharply rebuke. See, how we say things is as important as what we say. It took me a long time to learn that lesson. Uh, I could have all the scriptural support and all the moral high ground in the world, but if I came in and let my emotions get the best of me, no one will listen I had a few times as a youth pastor where I had to approach older men with bigger titles than I about their sin and indiscretion. And many times I allowed my emotions to get the best of me and no one listened. God taught me big lessons in those situations. And as younger people, we have to realize that when we approach young, older uh, men and women with love and respect, just like we would a father and mother, then they'll listen. And instead of just fighting encouraging and exhorting them to do what's right. And the same goes for younger people. It says here uh, that we should choose to come alongside them like an older brother would come alongside a younger brother. An older sister is a younger sister, guiding them to the truth. Yeah, it's a lot quicker to yell at them and just be sarcastic and, and make jokes about their mistakes. That's way easier. But we're supposed to strengthen our fellow believers in the same way the Bible and the Holy Spirit strengthens our walk. Now, the church in Ephesus was about 10 years old at this time, and it had a very well-developed and carefully administered charity work to widows. A group of younger widows were beginning to take advantage of what the church was doing. Many scholars believe it was that same group of women that was dressing lavishly to impress and uh, were trying to gain financial support from the church at the same time. You see the phrase, truly widows, uh, over and over again in these next few passages. And uh, here it's giving the impression that some were falsely claiming to be widows, which is really messed up, right? <laughs> uh, but he also makes sure that they're women that served God faithfully over the years because they were taking financial assistance, uh, that they were also committing to continue to serve God and the church. And Paul makes clear uh, that families, not the church, have the first responsibility for their widows. And children are indebted to those that brought them into this world to raise them And to love them. And to take care of those parents that did that for them. Taking care of our aging parents is a mark of godly obedience. Now that we have a little background, let's read this section, which is a little bit long. It starts in verse 3. And you're going to find out when we preach through these books of the Bible, I don't skip over passages. Uh, You might say, well, you know, do we really need to spend all this? It's in the Bible. So we're going to look at it, all right? That's all I care about is the Bible. So. Let's check it out here. There is some really good stuff that we can apply to our life, though. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a, women, uh, a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives, command these things well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a, wibble, oh, let a widow be enrolled. My, my lips are numb. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has uh, washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur uh, condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So it would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman uh, has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church be not burdened so that they may care for those who are truly widows. The church has a responsibility to believing widows, but those women also have a responsibility to the church as well. The church here is urged to continue to love, serve, and provide uh, charity, but also to make sure that they're not being taken advantage of. Verse 17 goes on, it says, "'Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages.'" These verses urge us to take care of preachers and teachers, and Clarksburg Baptist Church is very gracious in this department. Now, one thing I like about this passage, as I love it when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, here it says, when it says, for the scripture says, that's an awesome thing because it tells us that the Old Testament is still something that we should be studying and reading and applying to our lives. It is still relevant. Next, Paul gives instructions on how to deal with problems against elders. Verse 19 says, Do not admit a charge against elders except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ and of the elect angels. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul had already given the qualifications of a leader earlier in this letter. So what do you do when those qualifications are violated? If an elder is in sin and there is evidence and at least two witnesses, then you go to them personally. And if they will not repent, then you take the accusation before the church. It urges us to avoid prejudging the situation based on personal vendettas and agendas and to be fair and unbiased. And this is in line with the, the Bible, how it handles all types of conflict. If you have an issue with someone, you take it to them personally, right away, always, as soon as possible. If you don't like what someone did, you go and you talk to them. If you don't like what someone said, you go and you talk to them. If you've got a problem, you go to that person and you deal with it. Yeah, it's not always fun, but surgery isn't always fun, right? And sometimes you have to do that. Hey, if you have any children, you know that the, they don't love to brush their teeth, but it is what's best for them, right? Sometimes you got to do things that aren't comfortable for a greater good, and this is one of them. If you've got a problem with somebody, you take it to that person. Our unity is too important to live in bitterness and unforgiveness. I've had people bring me issues that they've had with someone that happened one or two years ago. That's not the time to deal with the problem. Go to them right away. Take care of it. Once again, our unity is too important to live with that for a year. Next, Paul instructs Timothy to be careful uh, who you ordain and not to be hasty. Ordination is simply setting uh, someone apart for the ministry. And if uh, the church is going to ordain an unqualified person, uh, we will be partly responsible for their failures in the ministry. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I told you we're going to cover like a million topics today in this sermon, but that's what these chapters do, so we're going to cover widows, ordination, all of it. Uh, The next next verse in uh, verse 23 He lets Timothy know that although he normally avoids wine, most likely for the sake of his testimony as a pastor, that he needs to medicinally take a little to avoid problems that he's having with his stomach, perhaps from uh, unclean and polluted water, which is something that's close to our hearts here at Clarksburg Baptist Church. He says to Timothy, uh, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now we've covered irritable bowel syndrome too, if (laughs) you... We got it all in this sermon. It's all in here. Uh, verse 24. And these are the last two verses. It says, The sin of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those, uh, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. As a child, my mom used to quote to me all the time, Numbers 23, 32, Be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure your sins will find you out. See, some sin is evident for all to see, and some sin takes a little bit longer to see those things. And we're all good at hiding sin for a little while. In pickup basketball, there's a way to avoid arguments when two people are in a disagreement. You pause the argument for a moment, and you hand one person the ball, and you say this, the ball never lies. The ball never lies. And then That person shoots, and whatever the ball decides, that's what you go with. Well, here Paul's saying that time never lies. Hey, time reveals all things. Neither good works or sin remain hidden for long. So if you have open and unrepentant sin in your life, it's best for you to take it to God and ask for forgiveness now. Why? Because you serve an amazing God that wants to forgive you and wants a close relationship with you. And sin is to your detriment. Sin hurts people. It should break our hearts because it breaks people. And sin breaks God's heart because it breaks you. So don't hide your sin. Take it to God because he wants to forgive you. He wants to help you get it right. If you sin against someone else, once again, take it right to them. Get it right. Settle it. And we've covered so many topics in these verses. And we'll do this when we go verse by verse. Overall, we see the, this inspiring uh, relationship between this mentor, Paul, and this mentee, Timothy. I didn't say manatee. I said mentee. It's something different. We see this relationship between these two guys. And we get a glimpse into what real discipleship should look like. This exchanging of wisdom and this being involved in someone's life to the point that you can help them. He even knows, he's so close with Timothy, he even knows about his stomach issues. And he gives him this uh, advice on how he should handle these things. So who are you pouring into their life like Paul poured into Timothy? How are you passing the baton to the next generation? First, we saw in these uh, passages that our age does not define what we can do for God. So don't let your age stop you from believing that you can make a big difference in this world. We saw the big benefit of both the younger generation and the older generation reaching towards each other with uh, the mission of reaching people for Jesus Christ. We saw the importance of uh, keeping our emotions in check when we approach sin in those that are around us and to encourage them like family. We saw that the church here is urged to continue in love and service and provide charity, but also make sure that the church is not being taken advantage of. We saw the steps of handling conflict among believers, to be direct, to go right to that person right away. And lastly, we saw here that we cannot hide sin, and it's way better just to get it right right now. Let's stand to our feet and bow our heads. Band's going to come. Surely, out of all the topics we covered today, God spoke to your heart about something, right? Well, now's the time that we go to God and talk to him about what he spoke to us about. With every head's bowed and eyes closed. This is a time of meditation, a reflection Because we don't believe that this is just uh, this thing we call preaching and a message and opening God's word. We don't believe that that's just a time of entertainment where we sit back and listen. We believe this is a time where we add things to our faith. So what can you add to your faith from these passages that we covered today? As we sing. And as this altar's open down here, take a moment. Pause. Think about your relationship with God. Think about where you're at. I once heard it said that if you have ever been closer to God than you are right now, then you're going backwards. That should scare you. Process of sanctification and holiness and getting closer to God, we always should be pushing in closer. I know there's been big times in my life where I've had to realign my priorities. As the altars open, you come now.